Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here's a list of the kind of topics and discussion points that we hit on in today's episode. So we cover the intersection of academia and industry. Luckily, Andrea is sitting right between both of those fields. We talk about optimization as a buzzword and how we find it everywhere, from aerospace to cosmetics. We come to the conclusion that there's no formula for completing graduate school. It's all about maximizing what Andrea calls bum-in-chair time. Andrea draws a fascinating connection between the seemingly disparate fields of engineering and biology, both of which she has experience studying. The meat of the episode, of course, is focused on Andrea's specialization, which is in the commercial aircraft side of aerospace. She finds reassurance in knowing about how airplanes work, and this increases her comfort when flying. So for those of you out there who are not huge fans of planes, Andrea Cartile would like to say otherwise. Her thesis mainly revolves around information management in aircraft modification. So that's a big focus towards the middle and end of the episode. And there are a whole bunch of other topics that we also get into. Lots of discussion, lots of fun. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Here we go. Andrea Cartile is a mechanical engineering PhD student at Concordia University, specializing in aerospace certification and compliance. Born and raised in Montreal, Andrea took an early interest in the sciences and spent most of her adolescence working and volunteering in the animal health industry. Upon graduating from a bachelor's degree in biology, she decided to switch fields by pursuing a second undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, and she's been studying in that field ever since. Her interest in science and policy has developed throughout her graduate school experience and involvement in the aerospace sector. She's benefited greatly from supervision by Dr. Catherine Marsden and Dr. Susan Lisquit-Hunke, and she's received funding by NCADE and the Hydro-Quebec Doctoral Scholarship. Andrea conducts industry-based research that has allowed her to gain experience in both industry and academia within the context of aircraft certification. She hopes to pursue a career that intersects research, industry, teaching, and promoting hands-on experiential learning. Andrea also enjoys reading, binge-watching television, working with horses, and practicing martial arts. It's a treat to have her on the podcast this week. So without further ado, Andrea Cartile. Andrea, how's it going? Hi, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. It's a pleasure. The listeners should know right off the bat, as always, I am not the mastermind behind the introductions, but it is my guests who get to uh, evaluate themselves using the words that they have chosen on their own. So that is how... Andrea Cartile describes herself and her history as an academic. Is this accurate? Have you lied to us in any sense? I don't. Maybe I've underplayed my um, propensity for doing other stuff. <laughs> I tend to have many interests and I go all over the place, which is what I really like about the university setting. Right. There are definitely many opportunities, as I myself have come to realize in the first year of my master's degree. Plenty of opportunity that can supplement the experience of just being engaged in research explicitly. And so you clearly have your feet in two different kind of pools. You have the industry and you have the academia. So that must really give you a nice experience. Yeah, I find it's, it, we, we tend to be um, quite uh, research-based in, uh, research-focused, I should say, at the graduate level. And I think there's a world of opportunity for engaging in research with industry um, and examining the problems or the challenges, I should say, that industry currently has that um, academia can work with industry in finding a solution. So it's very kind of real, real world, immediate application uh, stuff that I'm uh, interested in. Right. That's awesome. I, I think a lot of people, especially in, I would even say pre-graduate studies, they start learning about the field that they're entering 
And I remember for myself, I, I really wanted to know how I could apply my knowledge. And so getting involved in industry at this point, I think is, is, is great. And we also need to bridge the gap between some of the very esoteric and hard to, you know, hard to parse information that we're, we're kind of building in our research. So the fact that you, who are my first uh, industry guest, which is great, we're gonna dive into that for sure. Um, hopefully, yeah, we'll learn a little bit about how you bridge the gap. I guess we could even start with that. When, did, when, when specifically did you get involved in industry and like when did you start to kind of apply your research knowledge in that way? So I've actually um, always been quite uh, industry focused. I started working at a pretty early age and I've always had multiple part-time jobs uh, at any given time just because I really, I like the structure of work and I like the structure of part-time, I guess the, the gig economy mm -hmm. uh, as we're calling it now. So. Uh, I try and have as uh, gain as much experience in different types of settings through these kind of part-time jobs. And as my, I guess, um, career in as a full-time student has evolved, I've, I've tried to gear the contracts that I take uh, and that I engage with more towards the fields that I am studying. So um, my real, I guess, engineering exposure and industry involvement came through the cooperative education program at Concordia. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a co-op student, but I was in the industrial experience part of co-op, which is something fancy. Yeah, it's called, it's really interesting, actually. It's, it's kind of like a, a less intense version of co-op where uh, somebody can, when I was taking it, you had unlimited opportunities for internships, I believe, or at least at least three internships you could take. So it was in the summers only. And um, as a non-co-op student, you had to apply every time that you wanted to do this. But it, gave, it gives the students access to um, like data banks and databases of job internship opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be accessible to the students. And it has incentive for the industry as well. So it's an easy hiring mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I did two internships in my, um, my mechanical engineering bachelor's degree. So I did the first one with L'Oreal Canada. Uh, they have a production plant facility uh, in Montreal. And I was able to go and work uh, on the production line and see how they make shampoo, which is very conscious. everything you know. What are the secrets? What's in there that we shouldn't know is in there? Contrary to popular belief, it's not the actual shampoo fairies that make the shampoo, right? So people used to ask me all the time, like, oh, you're working for L'Oreal. Like, what could you, what, how is this in an engineering capacity? Mm -hmm. But it's actually, it's like anything. It has to be made. And I don't actually know the secret ingredients for, for the shampoo, but it's a very interesting process. And it's also, there's a lot of quality control aspects and research and important work that goes into making these products so that they're obviously safe for human consumption, but all, right. the, all of them, the big picture of an industry that goes into making products and selling them to people, it's very, very fascinating. Uh, and L'Oreal is particularly experienced in many of these areas. So that was a really fascinating uh, internship. And then I did a second internship at Shell Canada. Wait, hold on a second. Before you hop into Shell, just because this is, this is such an interesting experience that you've had kind of going infiltrating the L'Oreal production line like what was what was what was the coolest thing what was the biggest takeaway that you had from that experience specifically uh, dealing with such a huge company for example yeah so I mean it's it's very interesting because it's like a multinational kind of like conglomerate right so they yeah. have owned many many different types of products and they have production plants all over the world every production plant has their own kind of specialty in the types of products that they're making. And in Montreal, we have a lot of really like excellent expertise. So the, the trickier products to make the um, like things like optimization and making sure like water reduction uh, in terms of water consumption, like all of these really important research areas um, are Montreal's specialty. So cool. It's just really interesting to see how a company manages multiple products and the consumer demand and how you how there's like a very quick feedback loop into how you have to change your products that you're making in a specific day and plan it out and co co like collaborate with all of the entities. So everybody from the marketing all the way down to the person who's actually mixing the product 
and like the sheer volume of product and how it goes from being like just, you know, individual items like chemicals and yeah. then together and then packaged and put it, it's like, it's such an incredibly intensive process. I would imagine for sure. I yeah. like that you use the, the term optimization. Yeah, that's, so that's an engineering buzzword. I'm actually all the engineers. If anyone listens to this, who's an engineer. <laughs> Or roll their eyes at the word optimization. So I love the word optimization. It's it's a word that I try and apply to even even small daily tasks in my life. I try to if I'm cooking in the kitchen, I want to optimize the time that the water starts boiling for the pasta to be ready when the vegetables are going, etc. Um, optimization also. So I, I have a kind of small background in in physics, so I, I do understand kind of the whole the whole jargony idea behind that you know if you're if you're if you're building physical systems you definitely want to optimize every element of it you know minimal water usage minimal electricity usage for example but i i bring up optimization because that seems to me to also be a very important part of managing a graduate degree (laughs) you know you (laughs) optimization obviously comes hand in hand with organization those are kind of the two big o's in my mind so it makes sense, at least, that you, you know, see the optimization as an interesting aspect of industry, given that you probably apply that in your academics. Do you see the connection there as well? Yeah, well, it's, so it's a tricky, optimization is a tricky word because it's a catch-all, right? It generally means doing something more efficiently, but it really is dependent on what your priorities are. So an in industry, cost is a major driver of things like optimization, and you're looking for the cost to profit trade-off and also the quality of your product. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into this word, this catch-all phrase of optimization. For graduate studies, it's a bit of a different ballgame because it's not, we're not really looking at cost in terms of in terms of a grad student's experience. I mean, yes, this is a factor that comes into play, but it's more of a focus on a learning experience and developing expertise and managing all of, you know, defining the scope, managing all of the things that we have going on as a graduate student. So I'm not really, I, you know, I haven't, I have certainly haven't figured out the optimization of graduate studies. I am 100% like everybody else just trying to figure out how to do this because there isn't really a formula for graduate school, at least that I have found. That's a million dollar industry right there, optimizing graduate school. Make a textbook and and just start printing it and handing it out. And there are, there are people who, of course, tried to do this, right, tried to contribute to the field of how to do grad school. And the, the problem is that it's very different for every individual. Mm-hmm, and I'm sure, sure like a hack, right, like a formula for how to churn out grad students and get a degree and get the learning experience and do all of this stuff. But I'm still trying to figure out what that is. <laughs> well, I hope that one day, maybe, we figure it out. That would and- be nice. And maybe, maybe it'll be surprising. Maybe there's, you know, someone, someone's going to have a light bulb go off in their head somewhere on, on the planets at some point in time, and it's just going to blow us all away. The trick was to actually just, just sit on a chair and think. Think yeah. very hard. It's, it's, it's the, uh, I have a friend who uses the, the bum in chair um, expression, like grad yeah. school is about bum in chair time on the computer, doing, yeah. actually doing the work. I think Since- that's like the secret 100% since 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 COVID because I've been trying to um, do the bum and chair as much as possible I'll show you right now I just purchased myself one of these for the listeners I'm, I'm, I'm holding up a uh, comfortable pillow oh wow it's an ergonomic pillow oh man it's an it's an ergonomic pillow so ergonomic I would highly recommend it uh, quick plug for everlasting comfort u-shaped comfort seat would highly recommend it. Now that I'm not sitting on it, I'm very uncomfortable. Does, has it improved your overall quality of life? Hugely. That's, Immensely. That is wonderful. I and can sit again. That's amazing. And that's something that, yeah, we, that's been like a real challenge of this, this pandemic is people have suddenly found themselves being stuck at home with the equipment they have. And it's like, yep. into like from maybe, I don't know, a handful of hours a day or a week, uh, in terms of use time, it's now full-time use time. Exactly. The bum and chair actually is, is not the issue in terms of, of lacking time of bum and chair. Now it's too much bum and chair. Exactly. Um, exactly. And not the right chair. Bum in wrong chair. 
that's going to be the theme of today's episode. Let's just talk about bums and chairs for the next 40 minutes, shall we? Yeah, the ergonomics of bums and chairs and <laughs> on the graduate student experience, 100% with you. That, that's a thesis right there. We, maybe we can use your, your industry and engineering experience to actually manufacture, and then uh, my psychology background can be used yeah. for absolutely nothing. So. <laughs> that's not true. What are the no, no. comfortable chairs on the psychology true. of the student? That's where we got multiple theses here. Uh, amazing incredible can't wait um you did so in the in the introduction you did mention that you have a background in biology in the animal health industry and then you changed to mechanical engineering that to me seems like a pretty big jump what what kind of headspace were you in at that point when you were deciding to change paths and what was the catalyst so i think like uh, many people of I was going to say our generation, but maybe it's the case for many people everywhere. I have no particular life plan. Um, the last time I had a life plan, I wanted to be a vet, a veterinarian. Okay. Um, and this was like my absolute plan for, I don't know, from the ages of 10 until the ages of maybe 21. Okay. So I, I spent time in, I worked with horses for uh, most of my life and I spent a lot of time in the animal health industry volunteering and just getting involved and then going into biology for the intent of, of pursuing that. So I had a change of heart, maybe about so halfway through biology, where I realized that, first of all, I would probably never get in to vet med, which is an important realization. And also that I maybe wasn't as interested in pursuing the field as I had originally intended. So I had to do a brainstorming of what's next, because after a biology degree, it's the the options are, I shouldn't say limited, but it's, you know, the, the, the main pathways are either pursuing research, so going into a master's PhD, or taking a job that requires just a bachelor's degree, so like anything that's either related or unrelated to biology, um, or pursuing more different other school. So I Hold on a second, though. So maybe, maybe I'm not seeing this, but, and I... As I'm asking this question, I'm probably going to somewhat answer it in my head, but given that you have this interest in industry, was there no opportunity to apply your biological knowledge in a biological industry of, of some sort, aside from teaching or research? So that's a good question. I didn't, the opportunities within like fields related to biology with just a, a general bachelor's degree, I guess, in kind of cell and molecular Mm -hmm. I wasn't really aware of what the opportunities were in terms of pursuing that and nothing that like I didn't really take the time to look at it either because I wasn't really sure what my interest was in in that what I thought were the opportunities in that in that area. Right. And I think there is a big gap for young people in general in mapping out the actual opportunities that come out of certain either qualifications or without certain qualifications like we don't really know the lay of the land coming out of um, coming out of a bachelor's degree even or or beforehand right like our opportunities are kind of limited to what we've been exposed to growing up either through our friends or families or what they do for a living so it's it's quite um, you know it's a learning experience to know what is available after the of degrees. And it doesn't mean like I really, really enjoyed my bachelor's in biology. I learned a ton. I thought it was really interesting. I'm still super, super interested in applications, potential applications within that field. But um, right. I'm more interested in coming at it from a lens of, of engineering, like with an engineering flavor on, on that stuff. Sure. No, I, I think there's definitely a, a good takeaway here. I, I do like to bring guests onto this podcast for many reasons, one of which is that we can learn from their experiences, right? Uh, some of our, our listeners are in the, in the early 20s range, presumably undergrads or new grads. And I think it's really important early on in your graduate career or even beforehand to think about, you know, again, what kind of certifications you want to get and, and where your degree will lead you, what the opportunities are. Now, you did mention that you were somewhat losing interest in biology. And for that reason, that probably deterred you from seeking out figuring out what the options actually were. So that is a logical step. And I think that's totally natural. I myself have changed programs many times. So that makes sense. But just to specifically touch on th that leap from biology to engineering, to me, those almost seem like two different kinds of thought processes that are required to actually really dive into and excel in those fields. 
Did you have to flip a switch or did you just always have that, that dormant engineering brain ready to go, ready to optimize? So I think that's, uh, it's such a, it's a heavy topic is, you know, what we're, what we're programmed for, what we're not programmed for. So the link I think between biology and engineering and the reason that I knew that it would be a good, uh, a good thing to try and do was because they're both really about how stuff works. Right, so biology is about how the body works and we're kind of working backwards, right? We have bodies and we're trying to figure out how they work, right, with reverse engineering and our information is still incomplete, right? We don't know everything and we're still learning and the mindset in terms of learning about biology is you have to accept that we don't know everything and that a lot of it is quite abstract, right? A lot of it's very small, so we're representing proteins using different methods, right? We can't really see them. So it's, a, it's an interesting, um, you have to have a certain openness to that abstract approach to learning. Whereas engineering, it's also how stuff works, but it's a more, we're, we're building from the ground up in terms of our knowledge base and how we're approaching things. So they're similar, you, you can have interest in both categories, like it's a similar um, curiosity, I think, or stems from the same curiosity point. But the difference, the reason that I wanted to pursue engineering was because actually uh, math and physics were the, my worst subjects. I hated oh, wow. them. I thought I was bad at them. I never, I always struggled. I had all these friends that would like, you know, study in half the time and understand what was going on. And I would be there and still not understand. And so the reason that I really picked engineering was because if I, I figured that if I was going to do another degree or more school, that I would choose something that was the most challenging for me. And that's crazy. I think that's not how anybody generally thinks when they're changing paths to go, you know, I'm not interested in this. Let's try something even harder than what I'm doing. Let's just restart at a more difficult level. Usually I feel like people try and take the path of less resistance, you know, like they might come to the conclusion, this is too difficult. And maybe I'm just projecting from my own personal experience. I have the opposite experience of you. I started in physics in university, my undergraduate degree, and I switched into cognitive science. Without getting too much detail about that, it's not about me, it's about you. The way that you described the, the relationship and almost this like reversal of the process of engineering compared to biology, I find very interesting that you are building from the ground up because humans created engineering as a way to create more things and biology is we are studying ourselves we were already here before exactly. bio, right before biology came that's the way i see it and of course it's more i mean if you're coming from a physics background then you know a lot more about the the science i guess or the principles behind the engineering right the engineering is an applied field so Yes, we learn math, yes, we learn physics, but it's always within an application mindset or application context, I should say, yep. rather than a creation of the theory behind it for the most part. When we get into research areas, of course, there's a lot less you know, concrete separation of these types of disciplines or like theoretical versus applied. But uh, for the actual undergraduate degree, it's quite, yeah, quite on the applied side, mm -hmm. but it's all how stuff works. Right. And I think that does appeal to a lot of people as a testament to that. There are many hundreds or thousands of engineering students in the city of Montreal alone across the few universities that we do have. So, yeah, a lot of engineering students and a lot of them. And like you're saying, like most people, they choose disciplines based on what they're good at. Right. Or what people have. And that's the kind of the tricky areas. It's mostly what people have told them they're good at. Right. <laughs> so, if you're in like a high school or even in elementary school, somebody along the line will tell you that you're either good or bad at math, right? Like it's like this dichotomy. And if you're not good, if you're not naturally gifted at things like math, then nobody really suggests going into the pure and applied sciences because, oh, you're not good at it, right? Whereas it's not really, you don't actually have to be a mathematical genius in order to learn it and apply it. And yeah, sometimes you'll have to work a little like, you know, harder to right. understand enough of the concepts to be able to write the exams and to figure out what's actually going on. But I think that we should encourage people, if they can, if they feel comfortable, to try things that are totally out of their comfort zones and see if they can manage to figure it out. It's a very good point. If we have any listeners between the ages of six and 17, listen up here. 
because you shouldn't listen to what anybody tells you about what your strengths and weaknesses are. You're too young to know. You're just too young to know. So explore, enjoy, and don't sell yourself short. Yeah, or even if you're older, right? Like anyone can yeah. just try new things and see, right? Just see. And the worst case scenario, and this is what I told myself when I went into the field, is I fail out. Like that's the worst. And I'm privileged yeah. to be in a position where I can afford to fail out or to fail at something, right? To yeah. take risk. So that's also, you know, coming from quite a, a privileged um, background mm -hmm. on being able to do that. But if you can, then I think it's totally worth the effort. I agree hundred um, percent. I would love to start to focus in on your research specifically. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to know about uh, aircraft certification and working in the aerospace sector. How, what your research projects actually were. Did you do a master's degree in aerospace? or just a PhD? So I, I, I've stayed at Concordia for my entire um, academic experience. And I, I stumbled into the aerospace sector because I met my supervisor and she said, do you want to come do um, a master's degree? And I said, okay. How did you meet your supervisor? Through like a, a course? By accident. So I was, this is all very accidental. So I was, um, I was in the Society of Automotive Engineers in my undergrad, I was working we build these race cars. It's a crazy group of kids. We have a lot of fun. And uh, we had an event for uh, something that was, for uh, my supervisor was, was recruiting people. And that's how I met her very much accidentally. And I was in her office a few weeks later for some unknown reason. And she asked me if I wanted to do a master's degree because she was new at the university at the time uh, at Concordia and um, she was looking for grad students. So I said, what, what are we learning about? And she said, airplanes. And I said, airplanes fly with magic. And she said, don't worry, Andrea, we're going to teach you why that's true. So wow. I, yeah, and that's how I got into aerospace. Uh, and it turns out that uh, aerospace is fascinating. So it's really complicated system that you can spend multiple lifetimes uh, learning about and working in and still not know everything. It's really, uh, it's, it's such an example of, of the ultimate teamwork that's required to build, um, to design and build these machines. So this kind of seems like the aerospace field is, is just, it's essentially walking the line between industry and research. Like you can't have one without the other because you're actually building things, right? Definitely. So it's still quite, um, yeah, I guess actually that's a really, it's a good way of seeing it is that there is a lot of uh, research and development um, and innovation that has to happen in the aerospace industry. And there is a lot of, uh, of collaboration with academia. And Montreal is the third largest aerospace hub in the world. That's so crazy because of Bombardier? Because of, yes, because of Bombardier, probably, or a lot of because of Bombardier, but also because of Bell Helicopter and because of Pratt & Whitney and because we have right, yep. these major aerospace companies that um, are including all of these small to medium enterprises that uh, help build the airplane because it's an international collaboration when you make a new airplane. That's awesome. So again, for the listeners, if you're interested in aerospace, this is a place to be. If you're in Montreal, if you're not in Montreal, come over to Montreal. We're happy to have you. Exactly. Yeah, it's really, it is a really fascinating place. And even if you are not, you don't start off in the aerospace industry, if you're living in Montreal, chances are you'll end up either working for an aerospace company yourself, or you'll know a ton of people who are working for aerospace companies. Absolutely. Uh, before we started recording the episode, we already broach the fact that there are many people who we know in common and they're pretty much all through aerospace, right? Yeah, I think so. Oh, it is, and, and it's fascinating. So I, I did, a part of my, my, my research is with industry. So I started my research career by doing a six-month apprenticeship at Bombardier Aerospace. Okay. And uh, it was incredible. I, I would walk down the hallway and just like see people that I knew, like, what are you doing? <laughs> No way, me too. It's just crazy. It's such a small world in the aerospace industry. That's, that's really interesting. I, I feel like that's almost like an oxymoron because it's, it's such a huge industry here, but because it's so big, just naturally you're going to bump into people that you know. So yeah. because it's like the breadth of the industry is so widespread here, it's just, it's yeah. just a, a matter it's of time. 
big part of our economy and a big part of yeah our employment in Montreal is through the aerospace industry. And it's also yeah it's a, it's a really interesting way of both meeting people and running into people that you know. Absolutely, I'd love to get an idea just of the of the framework of the aerospace field. So um, many fields could be thought of as being broken down into subfields. If you think of aerospace as a whole, as the umbrella term, are there distinct subfields that it can be broken into, like a handful of them where you focus on specific kind? I mean, I won't even say any more. I'll just, I'll just ask the question right out. How do you break down aerospace into subcomponents? Sure. So there's def there are definitely subcomponents of aerospace, um, and usually they're, they're product-based. That's how I think I would describe them. So like for even in the title, aerospace, so mm -hmm. there you know, there's aircraft and there are spaceships and those are different entities. So I am on the commercial aircraft specialization side. Okay. You know, many people as well uh, will specialize in the space industry. So we have the Canadian Space Agency right here uh, just outside of Montreal. So like there, there is a huge, they're both very um, significant fields and they have a lot of overlap, but I would not have the expertise necessarily to jump over into the space sector. Uh, and like the reverse is also true. That makes complete sense. You mentioned earlier that optimization always means something different depending on what you're working on. So presumably optimizing a commercial aircraft is very different than optimizing a thing that's going into space. Yeah, or even just principles around what the infrastructure the framework like you were saying earlier that's a really good word so what is what is the intent of the product and what is what is the environment that it has to operate in those are completely completely different scenarios and use cases for each of those products and as a consequence everything involved in designing them building them regulating them all of that stuff is going to be fundamentally different um, so it, they're very different problems, but they both deal with putting things in the air. Right. So I'm curious. I don't know how much you know about the, the history of aerospace or, or how these two, you know, the aero and the space have, you know, grown side by side. Do you get the impression that the relationship between them has changed, that they've grown to become more interconnected? The reason why I think about this and ask the question is we started sending people into space for fun, right? Uh, so usually we send people, you know, sailing at 30 to 40,000 feet across the globe. Now we're popping them a little bit higher, kind of bridging the gap between this idea of commercial flight and space flight. So what do you think about that? <laughs> What's the relationship? Is, is the aero and the space now more integrated than ever? Or is that just, this is just a, a one-off random idea? So I think that the major commonality between the two, between aero and space, is that they both deal with uh, human life. So they're what would be referred to as safety critical systems, where a failure will result in, could result in the loss of human life. So they share uh, a commonality of, of looking at them through a lens of, of safety criticality and making sure that they are regulated and very controlled in terms of their design and their implementation and their operation. So I think that's where the primary commonality and the fact that they're going into the air. So there are definitely similar principles and overlaps in terms of um, the approach uh, or general principles, I guess, behind both sectors. But I wouldn't really know enough. I don't really know about enough about the space industry to be able to draw additional comparisons. That'll be my next degree. Perfect, postdoc opportunity. There you go. As, as somebody who, who is intimately aware of and working with commercial flight, do you, do you trust it more or less than you did before, now that you have privileged knowledge about how it works? That's a good question. Um, I think probably more. I don't know. There's actually, you, you could look into the psychology of, of uh, aging and risk perception. So mm -hmm. I think that most of my trepidations about uh, traveling in general, both in car and on planes, are actually due to just getting older and knowing what the risks are. But actually, the more I know about how airplanes work, the more comfortable I feel uh, flying on them because I know what's happening. 
which is, or for the most part anyway, mm -hmm. I know what's happening, which is actually, yeah, pretty reassuring. It kind of brings in a sense of, of, of control and, and dissipates the uncertainty a little bit, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And just, you know, it's no longer a black box of, you know, unknown, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it, it's more of an insight into what is actually happening and also what the airplane is designed for. Right. So when you hit things like turbulence and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, the wings are going to fall off. Right. As a passenger, then yeah. exactly what goes into, you know, designing and testing and making sure that the wings are securely secured. Uh, <laughs> it Hi, this is your captain speaking. Don't worry. The wings are securely secure and exactly. we're happily, happily here in the cockpit cockpit. So exactly. 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 Cool. I think that's, I, I specifically ask because I, I know there are definitely people out there who will be listening to this who are potentially fearful of commercial flight. And I, I just want them to be, you know, you know, to rest assured that we have an expert here. <laughs> and they say that they know more and they feel better. So yeah, another example of how education is just a good thing. Yeah. And my usual, my usual uh, strategy for people who are uh, insecure about flying is that if you're willing to get into a car, then you should be willing to get into a plane. Right. And again, I, I think that comes down to the, to the uncertainty and the control. Probably. Because if you're driving a car, for, it's a little easier to kind of see how, how car dynamics work. You can lift up the hood of your own car and, and look to see what's in there. You know, you fill up the windshield washer fluid, feel like you know what's going on. <laughs> fill the tank with gas, feel like you know what's going on. Turn on the windshield wipers, feel like you know what's going on. But in the back of a plane, there's a lot more mystique. It's true, it's true. And that would be more on the psychology. Of... There you go. That's, that's the only reason why I'm going down there. Just, there you just go. catering to my own interests and needs here for a moment. That's perfect. You mentioned as well that you are interested in... Well, actually, you know what? Before I, I ask you about about teaching, which I was going to do specifically because you've demonstrated you're an extremely good communicator and you're very knowledgeable and well-spoken, which I love. Uh, so more, more of that moving forward. But specifically, what, what were you working on for your thesis? Your, your, I guess we'll start with the PhD thesis. What was the, what was the title of the thesis? And then if it's very complicated, we're going to break those down word by word and figure out what exactly you're doing. Sure. So I'm actually at the beginning stages of my PhD. So right now I'm preparing what's called the comprehensive exam. So this is different for every department and every university, but for engineering and mechanical engineering specifically, this looks kind of like a big literature review of the state of the areas that you're interested in pursuing. And then following a comprehensive uh, a written paper, there's a presentation. And then we go into the later stages, which uh, then includes a proposal of what I actually want to do. So my committee has to approve that. And then there's finally the thesis is at the very end. So I am in the beginning phases of figuring out how to identify and explain uh, what it is that I want to pursue. But it has to do, so it, the theme is, is information management within the uh, aerospace design development but also uh, specifically within the sector of aircraft modification. So this is the area that I did my master's degree in. I partnered with an, with an industry industrial partner uh, that specializes in this sector. And it's a very interesting application or specific niche of aerospace because it's actually a much more complicated than designing an airplane from scratch or from a clean sheet. So the area that I'm looking at of aircraft modification is how do you take an existing airplane and make changes to it? And then what is the process and the information flow that needs to occur so that you can prove to the authority that's regulating you that your airplane, your modifications to this airplane are equally safe or safer than the original design. So it, okay. yeah. It combines a lot of uh, very interesting aspects. Like for one, the product variability is through the roof. So any type of airplane can come, come through the door and it can be any type of modification to that airplane. So okay. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's insanity. It um, is. From, I, I don't know if someone told me this or if it's just kind of this like fact. 
how many how many individual parts are there on a plane? Is it like a known number? I I assume it kind of changes, but like in terms of order of magnitude, do you have any idea? I don't actually. I okay. don't remember, and it would probably depend on uh, the year of the airplane, right? Um, and yeah, how recent it is. I actually have no idea what the answer is to that question. I'm 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 too curious. I'm are you gonna look it up? How many parts in an airplane. Let's see if it gives us an answer. Uh, well, it says 13 parts. That's not exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> that must be the names of the parts, like the basic areas of the airplane. Yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> we, can just, we can just cut this whole thing out and forget this, this question ever even happened. Um, <laughs> anyhow, presumably there are many parts to a plane. And so the fact that any plane could come in and any part could potentially be modified, who else is involved? Like, so I have so many questions because uh, I've, I've, I've never met anybody who's been in, uh, who's specifically looked at aircraft modification and you've just kind of opened up by saying anything could happen. Anything could happen. So, and uh, yeah. It comes through the door. So the, the, the premise isn't so much changing individual parts. So that will happen more from like a maintenance perspective. So okay. like, like you take your car in right to the mm -hmm. garage so there's regular maintenance obviously that happens with airplanes and it's way more you know you can have all of the idiot lights on your dashboard on your car on at all times right and nobody's gonna take you to court over that but right. for an airplane you can't have that right you have to have regular maintenance and it's all very planned and scheduled so switching out parts and stuff like that that kind of goes into the maintenance category perfect that's what i was more confused about i wasn't sure if modification and maintenance were the same or different but now we know they're not the same. It's an excellent question. And there is overlap between the two. So let's say that your wings, like the lifespan of your wings is up, but the airplane's still good. You can have a major repair, a major um, initiative to change out the wings on the airplane. And that goes more into the major modification type of sector. Okay. So where you actually have to do some engineering behind it and you have to prove that whatever new wings you're putting on are uh, equally safer, safer, uh, et cetera. But the aircraft uh, modification sector, it's sometimes called aircraft missionization which means you're changing the mission of the airplane. So for example, you have a commercial aircraft, something that you would take like a regional flight, right? From you know, flying across Canada, you're gonna take that airplane and you're gonna change it into a cargo airplane. Okay. So you're gonna take out all the seats, you're gonna put in all sorts of stuff to, to pack in cargo and make sure it doesn't you know, shift everywhere. And you have all sorts of regulations and configurations that have to change. So you have to actually, so the airplane was built for a specific purpose under a specific set of regulations. And now you have to look at the new regulations for the new category of airplane, okay. see what the differences are and prove that you can meet the new category of regulations while still maintaining without like building a new aircraft. Right. So how, how often does this happen? Like if I have my, my, my aircraft and I call up Andrea Carta, I say, Hey, I want to replace the wings on this on this airplane like what's the wait time can i just roll up this afternoon or is this like a you probably your wait a couple million dollars okay uh, cash cash does the trick yeah cash does the trick so usually so these these types of of modifications they're not typically for like like a, it wouldn't be the same as let's say you have a car that you want to get souped up so it, it wouldn't be the same type of, because that's more of a one-off um, customization type of thing. So these programs are typically for, let's say, a fleet of airplanes uh, that okay. undergo either this maintenance or you have a customer that wants to do, like needs a cargo aircraft, for example, mm -hmm. but has a couple of airplanes that they want to convert. And then the company, what they can do is they can take that, that modification, that design, it's kind of like a patent, but not really. It's called a, a type supplemental type certificate. Perfect. So we don't need to use those words ever again. It's a patent. STC. <laughs> Perfect. Take this, this, this license to use that, that it's been proven that it's been safe or that the design is safe and that it's effective and it works. And they can take that package and they can offer it to other people who also have those types of airplanes that want to convert them, let's say into a cargo airplane. So they sell it as what's called a kit. 
Okay. And how do you prove that that's going to work? It's like simulations? Because obviously, you know, in like psychology, I can, I can take a hundred people and have them perform a task and do some fancy statistics. And then I can give you some reasonable idea of whether some phenomenon exists. But in this case, you can't just put the wings on a plane and have it fly around for a few years and then say, oh, look, we have 8,000 days now that there's no accidents. That is correct. So you've hit the nail on the head as to why this is such a complicated area of product development is that you have to, in your design and development, you have to take certain steps in terms of proving and gathering the evidence that this will work and that you're sure it will work. So this is what's called aircraft certification. Okay. Yes. That came up in the introduction. Okay. Perfect. Amazing. So this is the process and the certification, that's kind of like the final thing that's given to the company saying that we attest that this is correct uh, and that this will work and that yeah. we, we've audited this process many times and we, we agree that this is safe. So that's the certification that the product or the end result of the certification um, within that product development, like within the actual design phase. But the gathering of that evidence and tracing it back, you have a set of requirements that you have to meet because we have this experience, right? This is like the aerospace industry is about 100 years old now. So we have all of these things, these sets of rules that we know should be abided by or have to be abided by in order to, to result in a safe product. So the process is you have to go through all of these rules, figure out which ones apply to your specific case, and then prove that you're meeting the rules as you develop your product. And that's what I'm looking at in terms of what is the information that we need in order to go from these requirements all the way to the end result, which is the proof, the artifacts of proof that this is a safe design. I'm trying to classify how I would label your job um, <laughs> in terms of something that is relatable to some other field. Uh, like, because you aren't actually working at the level of proof, you're working at the communication level. If you were to write a resume, like what, what title would you give yourself on the industry side? Of course, you're a PhD researcher, but in the industry side, like what is your title? So that's also, yeah, that's a good point that you're bringing up. So on the industry side, if you're working in aerospace, you've heard of certification and you know that it's a huge challenge. It costs a lot of money. It's really difficult to get into. It's conceptually difficult. Like it's really, it's a very interesting, but very challenging field. So as soon as I tell anyone in industry that I'm working on the certification problem, they immediately know what that means. And how it could be applied. So I, I would explain that I, you know, I'm looking at the process and the information flow and all of this stuff of like how the big picture, how it actually works. So on the industry side, this is a kind of a well-known uh, area, which would be similar in any safety critical field. So like if it were a medical field, for example, like the regulatory infrastructure for managing uh, medical equipment or medical processes, like there's a lot of parallels that could be, could be made from that. So could I, just because I like to kind of hang on to information with like labels, okay. <laughs> it's easier to kind of understand that. Could I call you an aircraft certification specialist? Because I can't call you an aircraft certification person necessarily, but is, is that essentially what you would be? Uh, at the end of the PhD, hopefully that will be my area of expertise. Okay. I will specialize in aircraft modifications specifically because there, there are major okay between the aircraft modification sector and for what's called the clean sheet um, or derivative design sector. So that's like, again, with the subsections of aerospace, basically means the difference between changing something that exists already, that's the modification, and clean sheet, which is like you have a blank sheet of paper, you want a new airplane, go. Okay, I love that split there. Even though we're kind of oversimplifying a little bit in aerospace, there's building from the ground up and then making the major modifications. Yeah, exactly. And okay. there's sectors as well. There's other ways of dealing with aerospace products. Um, and there's like, you know, you can add on to that explanation with what the lay of the land looks like for the entire aerospace industry. But those are two, two major areas of airplane stuff. Love it.
Amazing. <laughs> okay. I know more now about aerospace and the sector and aircraft certification. I might do some, some more research to figure out exactly how the terms all fit together. Additionally, and again, to the listeners, the idea behind these, these, these podcast episodes, having these guests on with us is to basically get an introduction to what it is like to be in whatever field they are studying. We unfortunately cannot cover in depth every single thing that we might want to in the hour so that we have. So I am, I am so far satisfied with kind of this, this yeah. nice overall image that we have painted for ourselves. A good, a good way of explaining it is it's like aerospace law. It's I had thought about law for a moment, like you're almost like a lawyer kind of conduit of information in that sense. And sort of, and like, you know, an aer aircraft lawyer would be more like the people who are making up the rules, right? Yeah. And I'm at the, okay, so how do we make sure we're meeting the rules, mm -hmm. right. right? Like that's where the kind of I'm hanging out. Aircraft modification policy maker. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Not even. No, so you're not a policy maker, you're a policy enforcer. Product development. Product development, Okay investigator oh no that okay. sounds awful i'm um, just curious like what do you say at parties you know like oh what do you do well it's funny so if you were in aerospace you know what i do but you're not in aerospace so i'm gonna go now you know i just say i do stuff with airplanes <laughs> perfect okay yeah <laughs> that's gonna be the title of the episode andrew cartile does stuff with airplanes exactly. exactly cool um i do have a couple more questions so one i, I just wanted to talk briefly about your desire to teach as I myself would like to teach. So I'm always curious to talk to other people who have aspirations of pedagogical nature. So you presumably, if you're pursuing a PhD, you're not looking to teach in a primary school. Uh, I don't know what small children could get out of aircraft modification policy, et cetera. So what's the ultimate goal in terms of teaching? So yeah, if I were to teach at primary school, I would just make everyone make paper airplanes all day. <laughs> class um, cut off the wings from one of them and then trade with the yeah. exactly exactly oh, that's brilliant oh perfect <laughs> so I'm, I'm not really sure uh, what level i'd like to teach at or where exactly i'd like to pursue um teaching in general but i really like it i've done i haven't taught a course course yet but i have done a a lot of um taing or teaching mm -hmm. being a teaching assistant yeah. and it's the hardest thing it is the most difficult thing in the world is to teach as far as I am concerned. And like the preparation and the delivery and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And it's really, I really like it because it's so difficult, but also it's really rewarding because you kind of get to put out information from, you know, that's factual and also helpful, but also from your own experience so that, you know, people can just get exposed to what it is uh, and why it's cool. That's the second time that you mentioned in the last hour that you like doing things because they're difficult. I think that differentiates you from many other people, and I applaud you for that. That is, that is a superpower. Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, it, it means that if you do stuff like that, it means you perpetually exist in a state of total competence, <laughs> uh, or that's what you feel like. But at the end, it's way more, I think, more rewarding because you work 10 times harder, and you do stuff that's really challenging and engaging, and that helps you learn as a person as well, right? Like the, the personal development aspect for myself is through the roof on all of these things. Understandably. I can't even imagine what your life is like. <laughs> but that's, that's incredible. There, there, is, there is one final question that I have for you as we approach the one hour mark. I'm not exactly keeping track. This final question is a question that I ask to all of my guests. And I would like to keep it going as long as I possibly can until my memory starts to fail me if I do this into my 80s. <laughs> So the question is, how would you describe yourself as an academic using one to three words? How would you describe yourself as a person outside of academia with the same number of words? And finally, are those the same or are they different? Wow, hitting us with the real easy questions here. <laughs> so, I mean, ugh, I think my main theme is perpetual procrastinator on all fronts okay. and I procrastinate from important uh, with important things from importanter things is okay. my general approach to everything 
So yeah, I don't know if I could boil it down to, to a couple of words. I probably could if I, if I really tried. I mean, hey, perpetual procrastinator, that's two. That's right, the sweet spot between one and three. I, I think you nailed it on the head right there. I think so. Hit the, head, hit the nail on the head, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, and that's why I do all the things is because I really like the, I like the academic platform because it really opens the door for doing as many things as humanly possible and at the same time uh, learning. So it's, it's kind of a, a nice way of gaining as much experience in as many different domains as possible as like kind of a, an immersive learning experience, um, which is what I'm trying to get at all times. And, you know, at the same time manage to stay afloat in grad school. Like immersive it. learning experience. I mean, I guess by, by procrastinating with important things, you are, you're just basically just deeply immersing yourself in difficult but rewarding activity. Yeah, yeah, and new activity. That's what I really right. like, especially. So I really like to sign up for things where I really have no idea what they're about and uh, learn, like just really have a sink or swim type of learning experience within the new field. And it's great because because you don't come in with, you know, you come in as kind of a blank slate and just absorb everything that's going on from people who know a lot more than, than I do at, as many times as possible throughout, yeah, throughout all the activities. So, yeah, it's fun. Awesome. And how would you describe yourself as a person outside of academia? Definitely the same way. The same way? That seems to be a common theme. People... I don't know what that is. Maybe once you become, you know, an academic at this level, it's just, it's just kind of hard to dissociate the two because it's, it's such a big part of your life that you can't really be a different person academically. I haven't figured out exactly what the proportion of people is, but per perpetual procrastinator, that, that's, that's your title. Yeah, and as a person, I think that the difference is like, you know, I, I, I guess I, I am an academic, although I don't really see myself like that uh, yet. Maybe I just haven't been in academia for long enough or because I'm in both academia and industry, it's, you know, it's a bit of a catch-all title as well. But, uh, you know, academia or the, the things that I do, like the PhD, these are, you know, jobs and activities and things that I, as a person, in, engage in. So I don't know if there's a different, necessarily, personality for the job as there right. is me as a person because it just is really a, a big personal development uh, exercise and, you know, trying to contribute and make the world a little bit of a better place. Awesome. I love it. It's great. We did have one guest earlier on who mentioned that they kind of have like a, a switch that they flip where at the end of the workday, it's just, you know, now I'm, now I'm not focusing on work. I'm going to do my own thing, exercising, all, all this stuff. So it is interesting to see the difference between, between people in terms of, you know, whether there is that switch and whether it's just, you know, you're, you're in it, you're in academics and there's this kind of flow between your perpetual procrastination, personal academic, what's going on over here. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, the work-life balance thing that we often talk about. I mean, that's yeah. really important, right? And for some, for, for myself, my own personality type, I enjoy having that flow. Like I haven't really gotten out of school ever. So I'm still in that mindset and I've learning how to, you know, switch it off and do other things uh, and knowing what my, like my mental capacity is for, for working or for doing other things or, you know, like what, what would be most efficient for me to do it at, at a given time. And a lot of that time it's not nothing, <laughs> but if somebody has the discipline where they can go to work and isolate work and just do that for a certain number of hours and then come home at the end of the day. And if that works for, for certain people, then that's really important to, to maintain and to prioritize. Absolutely. I don't think that's how I work either though. It's, I it's just a, it's just a, a constant rolling in and out of consciousness and focus and, you know, different activities going on much like you, I, I do enjoy having lots of things going on at the same time and keeping things new and exciting always, you know? Yeah, and going in and out of different, yeah, different um, things and then finding parallels between different uh, industries or different applications or different projects. Like, I think it all, it it's, comes out to the same development objective, but I think it's also important to be aware of what 
what individual personalities and people, uh, how they like to operate, and then making sure that you, you stay true to whatever that is, regardless of what the recommendations are. Absolutely. There is no one size fits all. Everybody over time kind of figures out what works best. So I'm glad that what works best for you is just keeping that plate full, keeping things new, fresh, difficult, tossing yourself into brand new fields. It's incredible. It's a great attitude. And I hope that other people hear it and are inspired by it. If people want to uh, stay up to date with what you're working on, and is, is there anywhere on the internet we can reach you, website, social media? Uh, so yeah, yeah, my LinkedIn um, is yeah, Andrea Cartile. I don't know the URL off the top of my head, but yeah. No that's problem, yeah. Usually where, and like people are welcome to message me or um, I don't know uh, what the platform is that you're distributing your podcasts, but- Everywhere. Everywhere. So yeah, yeah people are, you're all like, I'm very, very happy to answer, I mean, I guess answer questions or engage in conversation with anyone who's interested in either the university setting has questions or an in industry or aerospace or yeah i'm open to anything awesome i really appreciate that you that you've just publicly made yourself available you can't turn back now <laughs> awesome well it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you you lead a very interesting life you lead a very busy life and i think there's a lot to learn from your story so thank you very much for having me jeremy and uh, it's been a pleasure thank you for coming on the podcast today I'll see you all later. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays, and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.